WNBC. Want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Yeah. What's up, folks? We haven't done one of these for a couple of weeks, but we are back with Alvaro Rodriguez. You might know him as the writer of Machete. Machete. How do you, what's the pronunciation? Uh, I think it's Machete. No. It's, uh... <laughs> I got Machete. white as shit. Machete. Yeah, Machete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, shit, man. Other things. Many other things. Seismanos, right? Seismanos, yeah. Co-creator, um, executive producer on little Netflix Mexicanime. Oh, yeah. Seis Manos. The Last Rampage? Last Rampage, yeah. A little indie picture I did with uh, Heather Graham, Robert Patrick, John Hurd. You had me with Heather Graham? Yeah. Rest in peace, uh, John Hurd. Legend. Rest in Mm -hmm. peace, John Hurd. And if I have it right, you worked on the Dusk to Dawn TV show? I did. I did. Back in the day, I actually wrote uh, From Dusk Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. Mm-hmm. A spaghetti western prequel, which told the origin of the Salma Haya oh, character, oh, and uh, and then uh, in 2013, I was a writer on uh, the Dust Till Dawn, the series for uh, El Rey Network. El Rey Network, which your cousin is Robert Rodriguez, right? I'm his mother, actually. But yes, <laughs> I was going to say, how dope is that for him to get to be your cousin? <laughs> Right. I, I'm sure he sees it that way. I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> positive he sees it that way. Our folks actually live in Shirts, Texas, right oh. outside of San Antonio now. We're not from yeah. that area, but that's where they uh, ended up settling, military family and uh, Air Force. Right. Um, our mom said to tell you, you have a very talented family. Oh. Because well, she you. has seen, what is your other cousin's name? Robert Rodriguez's sister. I'm trying to find this mess. Patricia Vaughn. Yeah, my mom said she's seen her quite a few times performing. She's awesome. Patricia is incredible. Uh, Patricia Siobhan, she's sort of like a Americana country alt, uh, Tejana, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, kind of a musician, singer, songwriter, performer. She She's done a lot with um, Alejandro Escovedo and with Tito Lariva, who was in some of Robert's movies, and with Tito and Tarantula, and, uh, and also the guys from... Uh, Del Castillo, that Robert formed a band called Chingon with those guys. Mm. They did Malaguena Salarosa, which is used in Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, but Patricia recorded a lot with those guys and uh, um, with Robert LaRoche. And, and she's, yeah, she's amazing. It's always great to see her perform and, and stuff like that. And you and yeah, go ahead. provided the music for El Mariachi, right? Yeah. yeah, Chris, I think it's probably going to say that. Yeah, a couple, a couple of uh, tracks. Yeah, back in the day uh, when Robert had, uh, you know, he'd gone to Del Rio, Texas, and crossed the border into Ciudad Acuna, uh, where his high school buddy Carlos Gallardo lived. Carlos came, you know, it was the actor who played El Mariachi, and uh, actually we had all gone to this uh, Catholic school together in San Antonio. Um, but uh, Robert, you know, had shot the movie, and then. You know, he was editing it. Uh, he had transferred all of his film stock to videotape and was editing it at the uh, the local uh, public access station where they had equipment that he could do this with. And he was like, hey, I need some songs for the movie. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I need some like Spanish sounding shit. I'm like, <laughs> okay. I mean, I was, I, you know, I'm still just sort of a hack, you know, learning how to play guitar with the Neil Young songbook and stuff. And so... I had like made up this little Spanish riff and then, you know, I played it for Robert. He's like, I like that. And then I'd written another song uh, actually with Robert's older brother, Cecil. And so those two tracks are in the movie. So the little Spanish riff is whenever he's walking around town. Yeah. That little thing. thing, thing, Yeah. And then the song at the end, which I think we call Domino song, the the name for the, the the female lead in the, in the movie, El Mariachi. Um, Those are the two tracks that I did. What a wild ride. Did you guys grow up as a family just steeped in art and film and all that? Or was this something that he got well, into and blazed a path or what? Or were you yes, first? Yes, and. Because, I mean, the thing is that, like, you know, Robert's one of 10 children. Uh, Robert's dad is the oldest of 11 children, and, and our dads are brothers. <laughs> and Robert grew up in San Antonio, 
I grew up in South Texas, about three and a half, four hours south of there in a town called Edinburgh. And, uh, but Robert's, you know, Robert's dad played drums in college, in high school and college. Robert's mom played guitar. So it was always like the arts and music were really important to that family. They all got guitar lessons and, you know, voice lessons, dance lessons, you know, ballet, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, and they, they did things like go to movies as a family. I, there's a funny story I always remember of like Robert talking about how his mom dragged all the kids to a revival screening of Gone with the Wind at this theater uh -huh. in, in downtown San Antonio, you know, which is a long movie. They had like they, Row K. Yeah. Took the Row. <laughs> <laughs> and they all, they all, you know, they all got home and they're like, oh, you know, and then like a friend of their moms came over and she was like, hey, how are you guys doing? It's like, oh, we just got back from seeing Gone with the Wind. They're like, oh my God, I really want to see that. It's like, well, we'll all go again. So they got in the car and they went back to see the movie a second time. That's the kinds of things they did. So they grew up like, you know, steeped in movies and stuff like that. I grew up, you know, in a separate, you know, like I said, a few hours away from Robert. So the first time I ever really remember spending time with Robert, I was probably, I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And we were at my, our, our grandparents' house um, in South Texas, about an hour from where I lived and, you know, still about three hours from where Robert lived. And we're sitting in the back of the truck. I'm 11, Robert's 13, 14. And he's just like in the zone telling me about this movie that, that's coming out and how the director did this and how they shot this angle and how, and how they used this effect. And it's Escape from New York, a movie nice. that was R-rated and he could not even see. Right. But he knew all of the details about stuff. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> you know, it's like I have never met. I was a kid who was like always uh, checking out books in the library about movies and actors. And, you know, I was a voracious reader from the time I was really young. But I never really met anybody who had like had this sort of laser vision on like, this is what I want to do. I want to make movies. And so a few years later was when I got into high school, I ended up going to this Catholic boys boarding school and living there in San Antonio. Robert, his family lived across the street. So he was a day student. He just went there during the day, but I lived there full time. And he was already starting to make his first shorts and stuff there. He conned the priest Crazy. at the school into, into letting him make a short video at the end of the year instead of a term paper. So like his sophomore awesome. year, he made his first movie called, uh, priest wars and his junior year was Genre from Hills. the start right yeah yeah totally <laughs> fucking love it priest wars sophomore year uh beverly hills priest junior year and miami priest senior year so you can see the, the 80s priest trilogy the, yeah the priest trilogy and they were really you know it's like each one was better than the last one and each one was a little bit longer than the last one and had more higher production values and and he was still, you know, he was doing the same thing that he did when he made El Mariachi. It was kind of like filmmaking by inventory. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've got, a, I've got a gun. I've got some cool Terminator glasses. I've got these, you know, slugs. Uh, they called themselves the video slugs, his buddies in high school that, yep. you know, would <laughs> be in his things. And it's like, you know, we there's a creek we can shoot at and there's a garage we can shoot in. And it's like, this is how the story gets built, you know? Yeah, and, we are. Uh, we are part of a whole generation of filmmakers inspired by that. Yes. And I feel like not enough people are doing it still. Mm -hmm. Like we just made a film for like 25 grand shot on cell phones, et cetera. We did the same thing. We're like, what do we have around us that we could make a film with, you know, directly made inspired people's by basements that. for the set and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it used Craigslist free shit to get, you know, set mm -hmm. dressing, et cetera, and just build this thing out as cheap as possible as grassroots as possible. And it's so empowering to do that. And I feel like all these people out there are still trying to make films by committee. And it's like, suck it down as much as you can do on your own, do it. Like if you can operate the camera, you can frame a shot, do it. If you can, there's yeah. a million stories and, you can tell with no budget. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Be an autodidact and get uh, some rudimentary, at least editing skills so that you can cobble something together by YouTube tutorials and shit. You know, it's like the power is like in our pocket these days more than ever. He was Absolutely. shooting on film, I imagine, his first mm -hmm. ones, or well, was it I mean, the, camcorders? It was, it, it was, it was, VHS. I actually, I actually uh, uh, got to use the camera 
uh, or was trying to use the camera when he uh, his dad uh, for many years worked as a kind of a cookware salesman. And he, his dad was kind of uh, is kind of an early adopter. He was he, he's the kind of guy who would go out and buy something if he thought it would help him with his sales. So he mm. bought like this in the late 70s, early 80s, probably. He bought this video camera that was literally just a box. Yeah, like, like the old a, boom boxes. A, a Lumiere kind of looking box camera, you know, that just had a, a, a lens on it that you had to manually focus. It had no viewfinder. You'd have to hook it up to a monitor to see what you were doing. And this was the thing that he started using, you know, when he was making his first stuff. He had Video know, Village in the 70s. Damn. <laughs> I mean, but he actually, he didn't have the monitor. He just had the uh, thing, you know, so he was like doing mm -hmm. manually doing it blind, essentially yeah. doing it blind. Dude, that's so um, fun and awesome. That man. is cool. It's like, that's the way to go, man. Yeah. Yeah. But then when he was in high school, you know, he's got a little bit more, you know, some nicer equipment, but still, I mean, it's like the most today would seem like the stone age kind of stuff, For you sure. know? Uh, but uh, yeah. And, you know, he just kept it, that tapes were cheap. You know, and and he was someone who you know kind of like looked at what he had access to and then did that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it is. And he always he always used to say stuff like the whole intention behind El Mariachi at the very beginning was his friend Carlos had shown him some movie that was made for the Mexican video market. You know, and it was just trash, and they probably cost twenty five thousand dollars. And Robert's like, well, let's see if I can, if I can raise seven thousand dollars. I can make my own movie for the Spanish video market and then I can sell it for $25,000 and I'll take that $25,000 to make a bigger movie. And that was it, but, you know, it was kind of this incremental thing. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he, but he was always like, you know, I don't know what, if someone sees my movie, I, I want to be able to, to, I don't know if I'm good at editing. I don't know if I'm good at directing. I don't know if I'm good at writing. I don't know if I'm good at scoring, but I'm going to try to do all these things because someone might see my movie and say, oh my God, this thing is directed like a pile of shit, but this guy could really edit, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so he was really trying to like hone all these skills, not knowing which one might be the one that he would actually, yeah, you know, get paid yeah, to thrive do. in or yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not here to no. talk about him the whole time, but I just thought maybe <laughs> his roots were your roots to a degree. Well, you know, they the are, story. because right yeah. after El Mariachi and I did the songs, you know, um, I was working at a small, my hometown, small town newspaper. And, um, you know, I had just graduated from college. And and he was like, you know, people are, are asking me what, what I'm going to do next. We have to write something together. So I was like, well, I've been kind of thinking about an idea about a guy who works in this small hometown newspaper as an obituary writer. And he was like, I like it. And so we started writing the script together called at the time called Till Death Do Us Part because he had met this actress in the course of his meetings and stuff. And he thought she was going to be the next big thing. And he wanted to write something for her. And that was Salma. So we yes. wrote this script, uh, Till Death Do Us Part, uh, where she was the, she was a soap opera telenovela actress in Mexico whose character had been killed off, and this obituary writer is going to Mexico to reconnect with his former girlfriend, who's her sister, only to find out that that she's that the sister has been killed in real life, and now he's stuck with the actress sister who's trying to get back on her show, and it has all kinds of like you know, a little stuck bit of romance. So much Yeah. <laughs> and uh and it was actually uh you know so that was the beginning of the process of me kind of working with him and then started writing with him and he, you know he and the movie almost got uh bought at one point script almost got bought at one point uh but then he ended up cannibalizing scenes out of it and using them as spy kids and once upon a time in mexico and stuff like that so the thing kind of got farmed out but I just started writing with him. His first thing he did for Showtime after that was a movie called Road Race, which was Selma, David Arquette, John Hawks. So I wrote a little bit on that and just kind of kept writing with him. And he was like, you know, my gateway drug into the industry. I saw this little, you know, door opening and I was trying to get through there as quickly as I could and insinuate myself into the. So you were talking about college. You were a film major? I was an English major. All right. Which, yeah, man. A lot of the yeah. best writers come from that world, mm -hmm. not the film world. I, you know? <clears throat> well, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, it's like 
I, I went to the University of Texas Austin. I kind of like followed Robert for a little while because I was supposed to go to a different school in Austin, a Catholic school. My housing fell through. I said, fuck it, I'm going to go to University of Texas. I got an apartment. And, you know, Robert was already taking some, uh, you know, history of film classes. So I would go with him to these screenings of these classic Hitchcock movies and stuff like that and just getting an education, even though I wasn't a film student. Sam you know? Fuller movies. Sam better than any college movies. degree. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, what I was getting at. Was I'm oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead, dude. I know you're trying to segue, but uh, I was just curious if you were on set for most of these productions, the ones that you were involved in, were you there a lot? Uh, no, I mean, I really wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I was never on set for El Mariachi because that was all being done like in Mexico, and I just I wasn't around at that time. Mm-hmm. It was only after he came back and I realized, like, well, you know, that he had done all this stuff and he was like needing music. I wasn't on set for. Uh, for, and then after that, it, it was Desperado. And yeah, I, I really wasn't on set until what's the first thing I was on set for? I don't even remember now. Um, you know, I worked on Planet Terror and that must have shorts. been wild. <laughs> Planet Terror was, yeah, that was wild. And then, of course, Machete and, uh, you know, and then uh, the Dustful Dawn show. But uh, yeah, I really hadn't gotten a lot of opportunity to see him in action when he was doing some of the bigger budget stuff, a lot of it was done in Mexico. I guess I was around for some of the spy kids stuff um, and the shark boy stuff a little bit, a little bit, but not that much. I was kind of, you know, I was kind of in my own, you know, desk drawer somewhere writing something and not so much involved in the production. Yeah. By that point you were doing your own thing. Flow state. Well, trying to. Sam Fuller. We do this, you know, my favorite movie thing is an icebreaker, even though we've already broken the ice here. But uh, yeah, pick up on South Street, man. Samuel Fuller is somebody who I've seen. I used to religiously just keep in the bathroom until they would fall apart in tatters. Those thousand and one movies to see before you die books. And I saw Shot Corridor and uh, yep. I think the Naked this Kiss was like, yeah, exactly. A couple of his films in there and I just never got to them. They've always been on my list of shit to watch. So thank yeah. you. For getting me to kickstart it because man i might go on a binge now yes <laughs> i mean i watched it again this morning just to kind of give myself a refresher i've seen the movies you know a, a good number of times but i was like i want to be fresh with it and it's just like watching it again I, I, it's 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 just mind-boggling to me and here you have a writer director here's someone who came from journalism here's someone who came from you know uh experience in military and in war and stuff like that and just Mm -hmm. just had an incredible ear and incredible eye and you know that that whole opening sequence of pick up on south street has got to be one of the nastiest dirtiest filthiest opening sequences with no dialogue whatsoever but it's basically a guy on the subway you know, with his hand in a girl's pants, except it's her purse, you know? And it's just the looks, this looks of mm-hmm. who's watching. It's like some Japanese and, subway or something. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, and, and it's, it's so, it's, and then as the scene ends, the first lines of dialogue in the whole movie are these two FBI guys or cops or whatever. It's like, what happened? You know, and the other says, I don't know yet. And it's like, that's, I just like the audacity of starting a movie with like that kind of a thing where you see the action that is going to de- determine mm-hmm. everything that happens later. But it's like, what, what, what happened? Like, what I exactly don't know yet. did happen. Right. <laughs> and also you there's already so as much you go through the story, you, you learn what happened at, with levels, you know, yeah. Russian doll kind of. Well, and it's infused feeling. with irony from the jump because this guy is a master pickpocket and he got away clean, except he never accounted for the fact this chick might have these guys tailing her and watching right. like Hawks, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Which is and very Hitchcockian, kind of, you know? Yeah. It is noir. Hitchcockian. It's, it's totally noir. It's just like, I don't know. I just feel like that, that I, I referenced that movie. Even so I'm in Pittsburgh right now working on this TV series for Showtime called American Rust. I'm one of the writers on the show. And so I'm here kind of as a writer producer, um, you know, on set for these last couple of months. And I've got another week here before I go back to LA. And, um, you know, it's a it's a very kind of noiry story. Jeff Daniels is is uh, uh, playing the police chief of this small western Pennsylvania town who's had like this 
on again, off again relationship with a married woman, uh, Grace. It's played by Maura Tierney, and Grace has Tierney. a my love Maura Tierney. So and, and Grace has like a twenty-year-old son who was like a high school football star, but never really kind of left the nest. And when he gets into some trouble, Jeff Daniels' character, the chief of police, tries to you know do some things that maybe cross some lines to help keep him out of trouble. And it's a very kind of noir story about you know like um trust and uh loyalty and there's a lot of other elements to it but but i you know i found myself as i was writing you know one of the episodes of like smuggling in some dick up on south street in there because i just i just find that the characters in that movie are so they're, they're they just have such kind of power everyone talks like a like like what you you've I fantasize is, is like the characters I wish I could write. The Thelma Ritter character is, you know, really mm. one for the books. The, the you know, the stool pigeon Mo, uh, mm. who sells neckties, or as she says, yeah, uh, that was great. That's a front, <laughs> yeah. Personality net neck personality neckwear is what she called it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, there's something about that movie and watching it again and seeing how the opening of the movie and the last scene of the movie or, or the penultimate scene of the movie are this full circle back to what we saw at the beginning and, the, and going back to the subway and, and, and pickpocketing again in a different way. And it's just like, it's so smart and it's so well done. And there's so many moments of like, holy shit, you know, where the violence kind of leaps off the screen, the camera is mm -hmm. almost like backing yeah. away from it in a way where it's like, we, we cannot control what you are seeing kind of thing. It feels so visceral and it's 1953 and it's just like, wow, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a kid in the movie theater in 1953 yeah, watching that picture. Yeah. Mind blowing like Scorsese, you know, it was a big one for him. He actually wrote a bit about it for that new Criterion Blu-ray release I was reading. Maybe it was in the old, I think it came with the old DVD yeah. version as well because it was written pre- 2004 i think which is when sam fuller's autobiography came out so yeah. didn't account for some things in there but uh when do you, when did you see it for the first time do you remember i think if i remember correctly whenever i think it was in the 90s sometime <laughs> maybe it was in the early aughts martin scorsese did this thing with the bfi called the personal journey through american cinema with martin scorsese did you ever see that no it, it's like you need to find it. It's on. Sounds I think great, it's though. still on Netflix or Amazon. One of those <laughs> things. Wow. Um, okay. And it's like it's 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 three one hour episodes. I think maybe it's longer than that. But he did one. He did one for American cinema, and then he did one like My Journey Through Italy or something something like that for his like cool. going back through the history of Italian cinema. The American one goes all the way up to the time when Scorsese started making movies in the seventies. So he's not really talking about you know, the De Palmas and the Coppola's and stuff like that. He's talking about everything from, you know, the earliest silent films, stuff like D.W. Griffith, all the way through your Hitchcocks and your Orson Welles and all the kinds of things that meant something to him. And when he talks about Fuller in the thing, and he, he, he I'm sure he talks about Shaw Corridor, but I know for certain he talks about Pickup on South Street. And I think it was that, that in little introduction to uh to that particular movie I, i'm sure i had already seen shock corridor and the naked kiss like years earlier but i think that was my introduction to pick up on south street and i was like i gotta see this i gotta see this movie i'm sure i went and found a video you know vhs copy mm -hmm. of it at the store or something i love like um, you said the intelligence that runs through it on every character is smart and playing angles and they each have their own needs and wants and agendas mm -hmm. that you know it's great so many modern things characters just feel like plot devices and fillers and you're vamping to get to the next story turn or whatever yeah, these are all real people right dictating the plot you know mm -hmm. yeah so i just I, I love it i love i love it it's like an endlessly quotable movie great but dialogue. the dialogue is like you got any happy money happy money <laughs> yeah money that makes me happy when you give it to me <laughs> right yes. you know um thelma so <laughs> ritter's character and her performance too man that moment when she's about to get got and she kind of yeah. knows it and oh, just the God. look in her eyes i mean for that mm -hmm. era of acting mm -hmm. that shit is money because a lot of it was still i mean of course brando would come along and revolutionize things but there was still some stagey acting in that era you know and she was mm -hmm. not doing that no i mean i think she's really one of the unsung 
heroes of American acting, especially as a character actress. And you see her in this, you see her in The Little Foxes, or, you know, even it's a smaller part that kind of almost disappears. But one of my favorite movies is The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable, and, and Montgomery Clift, Eli Wallach, and Thelma Ritter's in that too. Same cast. She's just so, I mean, in this movie, it's just like, um, how, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was nominated for, you know, an award she should have been. I can't imagine, you know, what would have been better than this kind of performance because she just, she's so, there's something so heartrending about that character and she plays it so, so, so well. It, that that world weary, you know, that speech, that last speech at the yeah. end. Look, Mister. Yeah, yeah. I was feeling it because I am favorite. literally feel, <laughs> feeling it <laughs> these days. Right. Like I was totally relating there. <laughs> you know, the Life headaches hard, and man. the back aches. <laughs> and, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, <laughs> trying to make a buck. But yeah, yeah, throughout there were some great touches, like the guy with the chopsticks, and he oh, took oh money. God. He took the, the money with his chopsticks. chopsticks and put it in Bro, his pocket yeah. and just keep talking. It was so fucking Lightning funny. Louie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what's my name? Your uptown name or your downtown name? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> it was great. I mean, that sounds like something you would hear, you know, today in you know one of Quentin's movies or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. They're so fr- it's so fresh, and it's just. I think that's the other fascinating thing about Fuller, is that he's, uh, you know, he, he's he's doing this movie that has all of these layers of of the political stuff. But our main character gives a shit about politics. You know, it's like, are you waving the flag at me? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and and yet there's like all of these things that I don't think you would see in the mainstream movie at the time in terms of like the portrayal of Asian Americans, the portrayal yeah. of mm-hmm. uh, of there's a, a small part where Richard Woodmark character goes to the library to ask for, you know, to look at the microfilm of a newspaper so we can sneak in to see what's on the microfilm that he's taken in the movie. And, you know, it's, it's an African-American uh, mm-hmm. guy as the librarian that he's asking. So it's like these little things that you, you know, it's like in a lot of ways, like the representation that he was able to do and smuggle into these, into these stories where you wouldn't, I don't think you would normally see that, but these things would have been, you know, we're going to cast this white actor. We're going to cast that white actor to play, you know, this Asian American role or this, you know, Mexican role or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that even then he gives the last line in the movie to the, to the mall, to the dame, you know? Yeah. And I just, is like, there's something about it. that I think it's just incredibly subversive and, and just like kind of balls out filmmaker. And, and I respect that. And I, I really love the, there's, there's a musicality to all of his stuff from the way that it's spoken, the words themselves, to the way that it's shot. It's just like... I love the yeah. fair similitude of it. There's no bullshit. There's no... There's no bullshit. Hey, look, I'm directing. It's all just no frills, exactly what's needed to convey yeah. what I'm trying to convey. It's so money, dude. And I feel like this is an era of films that people sleep on, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, they think of 50s, they think of Douglas Sirk melodramas, maybe, and you've yeah. got... Of course, the, the noir, the... the post-war noir era yeah. of the 50s. But aside from noir, which this, of course, qualifies as, but mm-hmm. it's not shot so dark and shadowy. And you know what I mean? It's not shot no. like a noir classically might be. And uh, Right, right. It doesn't owe anything to that sort of German expressionism, stark lighting kind exactly. of stuff that you're exactly. saying, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is something that people have kind of slept on. And that's why that, that Scorsese doc, Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. was such a kind of a wake-up call for me just as like you know just discovering movies like this a uh, nicholas ray's uh, bigger than life with james mason is another one he talks about um you know uh i think he even talks about uh, orson wells mr arcaden in there too but there's like different kinds of things that i hadn't even considered or you know ever really thought about before and Fuller was a guy who made just, you know, made a lot of movies over, you know, a good period of time before it started to kind of, you know, uh, thin out a little bit that, yeah, he's, he's endlessly discoverable. And you look at, like I said, like the just that quick scene with the Lightning Louis in the, in the Chinese restaurant. And then you look at movies like The Steel Helmet or The Crimson Kimono. These are other um Fuller movies that if you hadn't, if you have not seen, I highly recommend. Yeah, I was about to go on a run. Yeah. The Kimson Kimono, <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, that movie is just like it's 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 so I I just I can't 
I can't stop with the the love for Sam Fuller. I just I feel like, you know, he's someone that I think a lot of young filmmakers would really uh, do themselves justice by by exploring. His yeah, canon. he's kind of like a proto David Simon too. When you talk about those journalists, and it's journalists, man, those fuckers write good crackling dialogue. You can totally tell they listen true. to real people. Yes. They've been on the streets and they get the cadence mm -hmm. of common speech and everything you know and it really shines through man yeah did you see shock corridor <laughs> no that's what i'm saying okay. it was always in that book and i just right right i mean it's funny because we mean, come from we come from a world that was not at all steeped in that except for us mm -hmm. with uh promotional hbo in the 80s as kids where we just watch every fucking thing that was on tv for a couple of months when we had it and yeah. uh i always consider myself kind of a cinephile and so i start talking to guys like you and you think of the quentins and the Robert Rodriguez is who have seen fucking everything the Scorsese's, you know, and it's like, man, oh, we got yeah. gaps to fill, which is one of the reasons we started doing this with this podcast is guests like yourself have helped us fill some of these gaps in and compel us to watch certain things, you know, which uh, we've always been meaning to watch, but no, I mean, I, I'm the same way. I mean, just the times that I've been able to, you know, to talk with someone like Quentin Tarantino or whatever, and just like, you know, you get this, his encyclopedic knowledge of, of film at every kind of genre, every kind of level, you know, is just on another level. It is and, insane. You know, so you just like totally, you know, um, uh, just sit at the feet of the master when it comes to rain that. Man just like, um, yeah, Rain Man level shit. <laughs> when we were doing the Grindhouse stuff, uh, Planet Terror and, and uh, Death Proof, um, I was around for you know, when we were shooting Planet Terror and Quentin has a small part in that. So he was around it. So they were prepping death proof or whatever. And um, he had decorated his office there at Robert's uh, studios with all of these Mexican movie posters. And uh, so we were talking about uh, the Mexican films of Luis Buñuel and mm -hmm. he had not, he didn't know any of them. And I was like, what, what do you mean? You know, you know, it's like, this, this is not the way this relationship is supposed to work. You're supposed to tell me about shit that I don't know. <laughs> Um, and then I turned him on to this one Buñuel movie called Susana, which is a trip. And uh, he, he he said, like, I didn't like it. I said, what do you mean you didn't like it? It's got this and this and this. He's like, yeah, I liked all that. And it's like, well, then you'd like the fucking movie. <laughs> um, I didn't like it because you turned me on it. But no, I mean, I, it, there's just like, I, I, I just feel like... Uh, if I had to make the short list of like, what do you watch next after watching Pick Up on South Street? Mm -hmm. I think I think Shock Corridor is a great one. I think the the Steel Helmet is a great one, and and then maybe if you're still if you're still Jonesing, I would go for the Crimson Kimono next. And there's a lot of others. I think I saw the I big think, red one like 25 years ago or some shit. Yeah, but yeah. I need to revisit that. Um, and that was way later in his life. What about White Dog? Tell me about this movie. White Dog is really interesting too. I mean, it, it's there's a, you know, like I said, there's something about when Sam Fuller deals with issues of race, he is not candy coating anything. Mm -hmm. He's giving you something that you're like, oh, is that what this thing is about? Holy fuck. How did this, how did this ever, you know, and there's elements of that in Shock Corridor. There's one whole character in the whole sequence of things. Shock Corridor is about a reporter who goes, you know, fakes being, crazy to get into a mental asylum where there's been a murder mm -hmm. and so he's going to go and try crazy. to solve the Nelly yeah. Bly style shit basically yeah, the, mm -hmm. the you know a, the simplest log line ever but like i'll fucking watch that movie. Mm -hmm. and so just that premise i'm going into the madhouse allows you to to like you know talk about different forms of mental illness and how it takes uh, it's you know how it manifests and when you have and the types when you of start, characters you know that yeah that environment you know and when you start dealing with race in that space, it's really, really interesting. And it's got like all of these elements that, you know, still feel like this, this could have been shot today in, you know, in some way, uh, even though it's got its own, you know, it's dated in certain styles and whatever. But so the stuff in White Dog too, is just, it's, it's, uh, it's powerful. And you've got, you know, again, it's like by that time it's getting towards the end of his, career but it's um it's it's one of those things where you could really see why he was so revered and respected 
in Europe, particularly in France and stuff like that, where he was able to get some funding for his movies later on as he was older, because the Americans, you know, didn't give him much um, love when he was making the films that he was making in the 50s and 60s. (laughs) But But those movies all became big. Yeah. For people who don't know, White Dog, what I read about it at least, and uh, I'm not going to glaze you over pitching our movie to you, but Chris and I, that little movie we made is also about, uh, it's about a racist hate monger and it's th- th- probably one of the most unvarnished portrayals you ever see it turns a lot of people off i'll say um, right white dog sounded amazingly intriguing to me because it's about from what i read a uh, dog that is being trained to attack black people a white right. dog you know that's the term and curtis hansen a fucking legend co-wrote it with him uh, speaking of pittsburgh wonder boy is one of our all-time favorites yes. oh my god um, i love that movie too yeah amazing. fucking amazing um yeah, and it just sounds like he he made movies that would have a hard time getting made today. Even you know, oh, could yeah. you make a white dog nowadays? Other mm-hmm. than like we did for twenty five grand, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, um, it's tough. Yeah, he's someone who definitely definitely pushed the envelope. But like I said, there's something that's really subversive about this guy because it's 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 not that necessarily on the face, but once you get into it and you realize that there's a, there's layers to this guy, you know, for someone who is very much a kind of just the facts, ma'am kind of guy. And, you know, only tell me what, you know, because you witnessed it, you know, you saw it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you the tell me, you, you, you give me some hearsay thing. That's bullshit. I don't know if that's true or not, that there's something that's very nuanced about Sam Fuller in his own way. You know, he's not, he's not just painting with a broad brush and, you know, right. digging with a blunt tool. He's really got, but he'll stick it in there and he'll twist that knife. You know, I'm mixing all the metaphors here, but there's something that's very powerful about Fuller that I keep coming back to because I think it's inspiring to me as a writer to, to like find ways of being that smuggler. And I, the smuggler is something that I use a lot and I'm stealing it from the Scorsese doc because he has a whole mm-hmm. segment on the director as smuggler, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there it comes go. from people like Orson Wells and stuff like that. But it's this idea of like, you know, on the surface, you're telling this story, but you're able to smuggle in all these other things. And like, you know, in my own... anyone over the head with it, you're, you know, yeah, subterfuge yeah. to a degree that you're planning these things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the art of it. I mean, that's really as a writer, especially, you know, that's the trick. Yeah. So many writers are just heavy handed and they start with a message and approach it from there. It's like, okay, to start with a theme, but it shouldn't feel so overt, you know? Right. Right. I mean, there's always like the, you know, um, thing about, you often hear people giving advice for screenwriters and like, you got to hook them in the first five pages or the first three pages. You've got to have this thing. And, you know, that's true and stuff like that. But then once you have them, it's like the whole thing to me is getting, the, getting an audience or a reader to think like they come into your story and they're like, I know who this person is. I know who that person is. Mm-hmm. She's a bad person. He's a good person. And then wait a minute, this is not the way I thought it was. All of a sudden, I'm like doubting my own thoughts about what I, how I'm supposed to feel about these characters. And I've been misled into thinking that this was the good guy and this was the bad guy and all of these kinds. And it's really kind of uh, mundane when you kind of put it that way. But there is something about like constantly subverting the audience's expectation mm-hmm. and getting them to go along for a ride where they feel like, I know what the next thing is coming and then you give them something that they never saw coming or that they weren't expecting the character to do. And it's still like the absolute right thing for that character to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just like all so of a sudden, just, true. you know, yeah. this guy does, does something completely out of character, but you see like, Oh, all the hints were there. I just wasn't picking up on them. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that bleeds over into the real world where you find yourself judging books by their cover less and less, you know, and, expecting certain people to act certain ways because they are part of this demographic or whatever you know yeah but unfortunately that doesn't always happen a lot of times we feel inspired when we leave the theater to live life in a new way and it lasts right. like a matter of hours or days you know? <laughs> but uh right unfortunately right. <laughs> i don't know how much power we really have but yeah um well you know about- it's go ahead well, i was gonna say do you want to dig into the grindhouse of it all for a second like uh sure exploitation flicks what is their place yeah. in the modern world as far as like uh, like can we responsibly show our kids 
I got an eight-year-old kid where he's seven now. He'll be eight in a couple months. When he's 13, can I show him 70s exploitation flicks without uh, running into trouble? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, these movies are problematic, a lot of people would say. But, of course, to me, it's always just about having conversations of, as to why they are and how times have changed. And, you know, um, again, what you're talking about, the smuggling, though, so many exploitation and grindhouse flicks are smuggling their asses off. Yeah, yeah. Their, their hearts are often in the right place. It is, you know, the woman comes out on top at the end, and uh, you know, even though it's an ordeal and or it's um, these female prison flicks, you know, they're about the oppression of women, really. Yeah, thematically, right. Like the reason the monsters in it are they're considered monsters by the filmmakers too. You know, you, you yeah, know, in those scenarios. You know, that's we're just in this era where everything's triggering the subject. So it's yeah. hard to. No, I know, I know, and it's um understandably but it is understandable it's a it's it's a difficult thing and sometimes you know you feel like um like in in a way sometimes when i get into conversations about stuff like this i almost feel like um like like the time for my voice in that conversation might have passed now it's time for a younger generation who's going to you know deal with things that they find problematic. And if I have any role to play in that, it's trying to, you know, provide some sort of context. For exactly. It. Context. You know, because right. mm-hmm. I think you that's the thing. Present it to someone, you right, frame it a certain way. Yeah. Well, in context is honestly, not to be critical, what's lacking in a lot of these exactly. conversations. So yes. yeah, to yeah. have the elder statesmen of these uh, matters weighing in, it's like you said, uh, there's so much value in what the older generations have to say look at what scorsese did shepherding you towards these fucking fantastic movies you know what i mean but it's very easy to okay boomer the older generations and you know right right so i think you have to you know you kind of have to take a measured approach with this stuff because you know the reality is is that for uh, you know a younger generation a younger audience they have a different relationship with how they take in information through film through television through you know uh, whatever how you know this this shift from filmmaker to content creator kind of tells you mm-hmm. a little bit of that kind of different way of looking at things mm-hmm. and so you know and they're certainly entitled to their own viewpoints and their own perspectives on stuff but i think sometimes i know for in my personal experience as a 13 year old watching you know, um, some Chuck Norris movie or some Kung Fu movie <laughs> or some black exploitation movie or something that was, you know, considered, uh, might have been considered taboo or hard to find or hard to see at the time. And, you know, and realizing its problematic nature, watching, you know, Miss 45 or watching, you know, something that, that was lieutenant. really, right. well, yeah, I was already uh, of age when I, when I saw Full Frontal Harvey. But, um, but, uh, but, you know, some of the earlier stuff that was really shocking to me in whatever way, but it was never in a, in a way where I felt like, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better word, triggered or because I guess I, I was already sort of absorbing as much as possible the context of the time in which it was made or the spirit in which it was made or what was actually, you know, Mm-hmm. going on under the surface of what it seemed to be on the outside. And yet there was this other thing there and I wouldn't have discovered it had I been skittish or standoffish to, Oh, this is objectionable in some way exactly. or whatever like that. You know, I feel um, like a lot of adults have remained infantilized because we've Disneyed everything up and sucked mm-hmm. some, I mean, we talk all the time, ET and Goonies had dick jokes in them. You know, the stuff we grew up in the eighties with them. I remember watching like what you're talking about. Yeah, and watching Billy Jack when I'm eight or yeah. seven or eight, and it's like, yeah, there's rape scenes and everything in it, but you know that it's you know a bad it's thing. It's, you yeah, know it's what a mean? villain it's doing like, the act, you know, right? I always yeah. thought like films and fi- watching films that are beyond your age is actually like a nice soft launch into the horrors of the realities of the world mm-hmm. that you get to really know what the world's about through these films before you have to experience it in real life, you know? And a lot of people yeah. want to coddle the children and say, no let's protect them from the horrors of reality as long as we can. But it's like, then they're unprepared and they just don't, I mean, I don't know. There's obviously different ways, styles of parenting and restricting content and everything. But I just, I feel for my own kid that uh, showing them these things and discussing them is probably in the long run going to be the better move. 
Well, I mean, even even that, you know, as a kid, when you, you said about, you know, like movies that had rape in them, I remember seeing as a kid, the outlaw Josie Wales, which is the PG movie that has a very violent rape scene yeah. early on in the movie. And I didn't have anyone to have a conversation about with it. And it did affect me as, you know, as like a shocking moment and a brutal moment. But, it, you know, but then I, again, I cannot yeah. put myself in the position of saying like, you know, um, what I want, you know, would, would I begrudge uh, mm -hmm. a young, you know, a young girl or woman from, you know, not wanting to see that kind of thing because, you know, not it, it yeah. was not, you know, it's not done. Whether they, yeah. Yeah. When, yeah, that's how so, I feel. Again, the question movie is just whether it should be so ultra triggering that it's like I don't begrudge anyone who either no. doesn't want to see it or thinks it's trash. But we weren't right. trying to hurt yeah. feelings. We were just trying to, you know, lock you in a dungeon with a fucking monster. Is all you know. I mean, right. for a lot of us, this is sort of therapeutic, and you you write about and you address things that that disturb you, you yeah. know, and scare you, you know. And even in viewing them, the exposure exposure therapy of it all like that's one way to confront those right. fears and things that trigger you is to be exposed to them in a less dangerous manner and film can do that has the power to do that but right it's interesting you uh are actually well, I mean, running i would oh, just yeah uh, before we go into that yeah. and you know it's, it's like i think there's a certain you know i think as a kid too i kind of I don't even know I would say sought out. I think I did seek them out, but there was also just like the availability of, of, of uh, that there were, there were stories that were being made as movies or TV movies or whatever that were dealing with difficult situations and really hard to, you know, talk about situations, but they were done for younger audiences too, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm thinking about like when I was a kid in the eighties, I, you know, we were talking about White Dog, Christy McNichol. There was a movie I saw a hundred times on HBO as a kid in the 80s called Blinded by the Light with Christy and her brother, Jimmy McNichol. And uh, it's about cults. And Jimmy gets indoctrinated into a cult and Christy is trying to, you know, basically get into the cult so she can pull him out of it. And so that was, you know, it's like there's some hardcore scenes in that movie and there's some d difficult things to watch as a kid and you're watching that movie or another TV movie called fallen fallen angel with, uh, Richard Mazur. And it's not, it's, uh, uh, Dana, not Plato, the other Dana, but it's like, uh, it's a child molestation movie. And it's, it's just, it's, there's just like, that was made for TV. And there was like, we're dealing with, with incredibly dark, sometimes disturbing subject matter, but, or the, you know, Sarah portrait of a teenage alcoholic, or, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of like, uh, these things that were dealing with difficult issues, but they were like for teenage audiences. Even S.E. Hinton's work, The Outsiders, that was then, this is now, you know, doing the same thing. Oh yeah, thing. absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's, you know, maybe today that would be, looked down upon or would come with trigger warnings or would, you know, it would yeah. have all of that kind of caveats to it. And I guess at the time, you know, there might've been some sort of a warning at the beginning of the thing saying, mm -hmm. you know, this program deals with mature subject matter. Your discretion is advised. And I'm sure some letters were written. It's just that Twitter didn't exist, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's right. definitely the X factor in all this. Yeah. Yeah. The squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing. Yeah. You know? As far as yeah. had a long list of movies to watch after having talked to you for an hour, <laughs> I know how Tarantino felt when <laughs> you scored him. <laughs> well, even sex too. Uh, like like I, we talk about uh Christy McNichol. Remember that movie, little darlings. I love that. Oh movie my God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, again, sex, Frank discussions on sex for kids. You know, nowadays it's like, um, you might get a movie like, and this is probably fucking damn near 20 years old now, but 13 or something that. Right is a horror movie essentially version of that but it's kind of like what what honest discussions kids i mean who knows what's going on. i mean kids in the real world are out there just getting buck wild in yeah it's just it's this odd situation we're in where we can't have the art imitate life anymore the the life has gotten crazier than the art which is a weird place to be in to me it is a <laughs> yeah but I think the danger comes from when people like, you know, they just put up barriers, they put up blocks or they walk around playing la 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 with their fingers in their ears mm -hmm. because they don't want to, 
you know, it's like as if you're absenting yourself from the experience of going through, you know, uh, being exposed to certain kinds of stories. And I think the first important thing is to remember that these are stories, you know, that right. these are, this has always been our way of dealing with trauma, of dealing with, you know, how do I learn how to transition yeah. from a Catharsis. child to an adult? Catharsis, synthesis, all of these kinds of things that we learn from going to the movies, from reading books, from watching the show, from, you know, having an experience of listening to a record that changes your life and the way that you see things. Because all of a sudden you felt seen or understood or heard or, mm. or you found something in that story that resonated with you. And it's going to it's going to be the thing that's part of your psyche for the rest of your life. Some things, you know, the experiences we had and sometimes for us, you know, our memories are our celluloid dreams. You know, it's what we saw oh. in, the, in, in the theater or on HBO or in the drive in or whatever it was. But there was something very visceral, visceral about those moments that, you know, in whatever way helped shape, transform who we are. As, as yeah, in good ways creators. and bad. It's like, uh, I think of like the Me Too generation, think of a guy like Aziz Ansari and what he went through. It's right. Like to me, that's probably a guy who just was instructed on how to approach and have game with women by watching porn and shit. And I think of movies like Body Heat, right? Where he throws right. a fucking chair through a window to go in and ravish the woman and she's all about it. So, so many guys who can't have these awkward conversations with their parents or their dad was never a ladies man or anything. So right. they don't have that older brother and the movie instructs them on how to approach women. And then you get in real trouble because that's not <laughs> yeah. conducive to the reality. Right. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. uh, but the point being, let's just have discussions about all this. Uh, let's be less punitive and let's right. just allow for that, that people are wayward and uninstructed and we're always looking for, answers and uh ways to do things you know and sometimes we find ones that are problematic and oops you know there should be yeah. penalties for real predation but most of yeah. this is just people bumbling their way through life fucking up and getting burned for it you know well i mean that's the other interesting thing to me is i think that you know there's a just as much as it's really important that you know like i was talking about with sam fuller who is using, you know, actual Asian Americans playing Asian American roles and stuff in the 1950s mm -hmm. and, 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 um, you know, and, and, and really finding authenticity in, in some of these things like the Crimson Komodo, I think is really a good example of that, or the steel helmet, um, that, uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, well, we're talking about representation says, and shit it's funny because i've been going through like my stacks of a thousand old dvds and just watching nostalgia yeah. shit even though i have all these movies to catch up on modern stuff and older stuff like sam fuller but uh i'll yeah. just pull stuff out of random and like the other day i watched that dragon the bruce lee story with jason scott lee you know which is with all the stuff going on with, with quentin and bruce lee and accuracy right. and inaccuracy that movie is mm -hmm. just filled with inaccuracies but there's that there's telling scenes in it, like when he and his wife go to the movies and watch Breakfast at Tiffany's and he, right. this Asian guy sitting in this theater, surrounded by white people laughing at Mickey Rooney's caricature of a Japanese mm -hmm. guy. And then she notices yeah. it and she's like, let's get out of here and how endearing that is, you know, in that mm -hmm. moment. So even yeah. some movies that, you know, aren't firing on all cylinders, touch on that stuff. And I feel like we have had these conversations for generations. And maybe that's the thing, too, as an older person, it's like younger generations act like we just haven't we've had our head in the sand all these years it's like no that scene's in a movie from 94 or from 95 or whatever it is you know right and uh beyond yeah. that like representation is something that's important to you again we were going to touch on your running for the board of directors for the writers guild yeah and i've been joking we better pay our old dues that are in arrears so we can vote for you <laughs> yeah but uh it's hard out there um i think of the 80s and all of my heroes were brothers we had Cliff Hawksmoor was my dad. We had George Jefferson showing us how it was done. Eddie Murphy was the biggest star in the universe. Uh, Sanford and Son, 227, uh, What's Happening, What's Happening Now. It's like, these are all shows that I loved. So when we talk that there's no representation or hasn't been historically for me, sometimes it's hard to reconcile that with the reality I live. And it's like people just have short-sightedness when it comes to history and stuff. Now, I think behind the camera, of course, massive representation problems even with those shows you know probably but uh sure it's an interesting yeah. conversation to have 
It is. I mean, but and I think that's one of the things that that still is an issue today is that, you know, starting I guess with movies like that were big groundbreaking movies like In the Heat of the Night or mm-hmm. I Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the '60s, and you started to have more of a you know both movies with Sidney Poitier that 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 were exposing the white America to you know this is to more acceptance this is more of, of what is coming there's going to be more black stars there's going to be more black stories but a lot of those stories were still being told by white guys yeah and 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 that's you know what we continue to find is that there's you know there's a lot more demand perhaps or interest in these diverse stories but these diverse stories are still by and large being told by non-diverse writers Mm-hmm. Because they have, they're the ones that 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 have the experience. Because the diverse writers haven't been able to get much further than a foot in the door, and they're right. not able often. Although there, are, obviously, there's lots of examples of really big success stories of people who not only got their foot in the door, who are diverse writers, who became show creators and showrunners, and you know, and all of that stuff. And um, but I think especially in terms of you know, sort of the. Latinx, Latino, Latina exposure, uh, and and um, and just having those positions within the industry, those numbers are always kind of incrementally kind of moving up a little bit, but they're still, in terms of the overall picture, smaller, you know. Um, and so you can do something where I remember when Spy Kids came out, and Roger Ebert I think gave it a, a four star review, and in his review he said like. I don't even want to kind of make a big thing about this, but you know, what Rodriguez has done here is like, he's put in, this is a Latino family. This is a, and it's not, that's not, there's no like laser being pointed on. Look at the diversity yep. here. Look at mm-hmm. the representation here or anything like that. It's just like normal. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not even, it's not even a question. There's not even, it's completely out of the realm of, of any sort of conscious consideration mm-hmm. that that's a thing. So that's, that's one way of doing it. But the other way, I guess, is just the idea that like, well, it's important that these are the diverse stories that are being told by diverse filmmakers and that diversity, you know, is a key in some way to the story that's being told. You know, when we, when, when, um, Manos was kind of in development, and that was a project that I came on to with the head of the animation studio uh, called Powerhouse Animation. Yeah, Powerhouse Rooms. Powerhouse is awesome. Uh, my friend Brad Graber, you know, who had just done Castlevania for Netflix. And, you know, Sace Manos was kind of a concept that he had had. And they had done like this little one minute or 40 second fight sequence thing. Um, but there really wasn't like the whole thing hadn't really been plotted out. There was no big storyline and stuff like that. So I came on board. We started to develop it together. We had meetings with this company or that company and always got, you know, rejections, which is not abnormal in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, you know, it was hard for um, sort of people to see what it was that we were trying to do. But every pitch we did, we got a little bit more data into like, well, what is it that we're doing? How are we doing this? Then uh, we partnered with this company, Viz Media, who, uh, who were like the largest distributors of manga and anime in the U.S., but it was all imported stuff from Japan. But they were like, we like this idea. We want, to, we want this to be our first original project in, you know, in, in the States. And so together with Viz, we went to Netflix. And you know, Netflix was basically kind of like a yes in the room. And what they told me, which I, you know, I have heard many times since, and I have said many times since, is that they were saying, like, don't try to do something in your show, like think where you're thinking, like, how am I gonna appeal to like, you know, 13-year-old white girls from this, you know, from Peoria? Or how am I gonna do, you know, uh, try to attract this demographic? Wait, are you saying the people you were developing with told you not to think like that? Yes. That's refreshing because normally those are the notes you're getting, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's why it was like they were saying, don't try to appeal to this or like, how am I going to do this or that to make this, you know, be specific to your story and your world. The more, yeah, yeah, the more specific you are, the more universal it will be. You know, um, Alison Anders, the director, uh, writer, directors uh, I've become uh, good friends with, 
she told me this story about how she had gone to uh, to some uh, reservation and she was told like everybody here has video copy videotape of uh, of maybe the loca and and it's like none of these families had any connection to East LA, to Echo Park, to you know that experience, but they all had a copy of it because they saw themselves in that story because it was so specific to the world in which it took place. You had people in an entirely dim different.